Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome again to The Jury Is Out. We're going to continue our discussion of surviving your first few years of practice. And we have with us again, Elizabeth McNulty, Paul Tahan, and Megan Crow. So I think, Elizabeth, you one of the issues you put down that I thought was interesting was setting boundaries. Tell us, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that it's something that's really hard for probably all trial lawyers. What we do, our job sometimes becomes a huge part of our life, especially if we're preparing for a trial that's coming up. Um, it's easy to kind of let that take on over your whole life and you don't you know, put any time into any other areas of your life. And I think that the sooner younger lawyers kind of set boundaries and kind of find other things that they can spend a little bit of time in, you know, routinely, the better off they are. Kind of step away from work and devote yourself a little bit to some other things. Maybe they're fun things or maybe they're just things that are good for your overall, you know, mental or physical well-being. And this is a lesson that was really hard for me to learn coming, you know, straight through law school. It's like kind of a grind. And it's just, I hate that word, but it just is really hard and it's easy to keep that going when you start, when you become a professional. And now you think that your whole life isn't school anymore, but now it's work and you don't need to have any outside outlets and things like that. And I think it's easy to people see that and take advantage of it. And you think that everything that is assigned to you or that you're working on needs to get done right at this minute. You need to enter the phone every time it rings, even if that, that that's Sunday at 1 p.m. And sometimes that's certainly the case. But other times, I think that if you've set boundaries early in your professional life, you can take time to do other things that can be important to you. And your job doesn't have to be your whole entire life. It's certainly a very important part of your life. And it's really easy to get caught up in how important our work is and how we want to be doing it 24-7. But I think that we are overall better attorneys when we set some time aside to do things that we like to do and that are good for our overall well-being. And I think that I learned that mostly during the pandemic when things were a little bit slower, that, you know, you can have a normal life outside of work and it doesn't have to be, you know, in the office 24-7. I think it's probably uh, a challenge for everyone, no matter what point in their career they are, to set boundaries, um, when to take time off work, especially in our profession. I know we are all ambitious people, um, but it is important. And I think it's probably especially difficult for younger lawyers because, as we've talked about before, it takes us longer to prepare for things that um, it might not take more experienced attorneys uh, a long time to do. And so we may think that, you know, we have to put in all these extra hours. And that is true to a certain extent. But I think it's important to recognize when you can set those boundaries and take that time off and take care of yourself. Because I think if you don't do that, you know, it's going to be a net negative in the end. And if you're not taking time for yourself, you're not benefiting anyone. Your your work product may go down. You're going to be irritable. You may start to resent what you're doing. And we are all ambitious people. I know, especially at this firm, we want to say yes to everything. We want to do good work. But I think it's important to keep in mind that your best work will come if you're in a in a healthy mindset and, and have some self-care in there. One thing that I find is important for me to keep in mind is, you know, there are going to be times where you have to do the seven day a week, 
eight to 10 hours or more a day. And it just, you don't have a choice. You're preparing for trial, you're doing something like that. But you can't do that all the time because you, you run into the real risk of burnout. And the problem with burnout is it becomes a situation where you either decide on your own terms when you're gonna take a break and when you're gonna relax, or your body tells you, all right, we're done. The work quality drops off, the quality of life drops off, and it's it's so much healthier and you're so much better off if you plan ahead for that and relax when you need to relax rather than just pushing it too far. So I, I'll tell you a couple things, my thoughts on this, and one of them is really good news. And it's good news for all three of you, anybody else who's you know, at early level in their career where your 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 schedule is really you know determined by the person you're working for. Okay. And I remember those years. You know, the solution to everything you're talking about, setting boundaries and scheduling things and and planning your life. It is very, very difficult to plan your professional life at a trial firm when you're not the lead lawyer, when you're working for somebody else, because you get pulled in all the time. And, you know, I worked with lawyers who did things at the last minute. I worked with lawyers who did things well in advance. So a lot of times, you know, these late hours and emergencies are, are not your own doing. They're because a lack of planning of the person you're working with or working for or whatever. It may take a conversation with the person you're working for. Give me some heads up. I don't want things, you know, on my desk when, you know, they're due the next day. And I think, you know, you need to bring that up. Be tactful about it. You know, like you were saying, Megan, I mean, who's doing their best work if you got to do a brief and you got a limited amount of time to do it? And you should be able to do it and then get away from it and go back and look at it again. But uh, once you get to a point in your career where you are the one handling a case from beginning to end, it is a completely different ballgame. When I have a deposition in a case, believe it or not, I have two preparation sessions. One is two weeks before. You know, I've got a deposition in two weeks. I'm going to start working on it today. And I will get 90% of what I need to get done two weeks before because I always come up with some different ideas or different things we can research or look at or do some investigation, planning ahead. And you really have, a, have the ability to do that. It's not going to be as bad as it is now, I think, once you are the one doing the scheduling. And keep in mind, too, when you get to that point and you've got somebody else working for you, you, know, you need to do the same thing. You, know, you need to make sure that they know things well in advance. I truly believe that if you set a time to get to the office and a time to leave the office, you will get more done than if you don't have a specific time to leave. Every time I get ready to go on vacation, the most productive two days of the year are the two days before I leave for vacation because I know I've got a deadline. I'm not going to be here for two weeks, and this is the stuff that I need to get done. There are no distractions. I get stuff done. I'm efficient. What it does is it forces you to make decisions. It forces you to make priorities. It forces you to find efficiencies in the things that you're doing. So I would recommend that. You know, I know sometimes if you're in trial or whatever, you can't do that. But I would strongly recommend I'm getting the office at this time, and this is this is when I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going to leave unless something crazy comes up. My, I'm planning on leaving the office at this point. I know attorneys here in this office. There are 14 of us, and there are certain attorneys like clockwork they're out of this office at a certain time. And the attorney that I'm speaking of is one of the most efficient and productive attorneys we have in the office. And five o'clock, they're gone, okay? There was a, a young lawyer who worked with me about 10, 15, 20 years ago. I don't, I don't even remember, maybe 15. He was always here late at night. I mean, always here late at night. I, I mean, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, all the time. And so at one point, 
I found out through his secretary that he had been coming in and staying all night, like all night. And he wasn't in a trial. He was, you know, that's what he was doing. And so I had to argue with him to absolutely not allow him to spend the night at the office. Like he literally spent all night at the office, went home, showered, came back, you know, like later the next day. And he had done that several times and it just came to my attention. And I was like, what in the heck, what's going on here? And he was like, oh no, that's just me, that's me and that's what I wanna do. And I just said, you're prohibited. You can no longer do that. And I had to give him a time to stop work and get the hell out of the office. And, and part of it, I said, you know, it's not good for you, for your health for, and everything else. But I said, it scares the heck out of me knowing what kind of work you're doing at 4.30 in the morning, <laughs> you know, here. But anyway, you need to set boundaries and it's all efficiencies. I mean, it really is. You all are going to get better at what you're doing. And, and again, I don't like calling them shortcuts, but you're going to find out what's important and what's not. A lot of times as a young lawyer, most of the things that you do you're going to find out you don't really need to do. You know, there's a, there's a level of what we need to do, what we should do, you know, must do. And you just get better at it. You know, you get better at triaging a case and figuring out, okay, do we really need six experts in this case? And we just had this in a trial. We had 17 defense experts, 17. You know, do you really need to defend, you know, take the depositions of 17 experts? Uh, we didn't, you know, so you, you'll, you'll find ways of, of doing things more efficiently. You'll learn how to do them more efficiently. Long ago, a lawyer that I worked with, who has long since retired, gave me some great advice. And, and I was your age when I was working with him. And he said, at the end of the day, at the end of my career, I would much rather have people say, hey, I knew that guy and he was a great guy, a great person, than say, really good lawyer, but a pain in the ass, okay, or a jerk or whatever. And I think that's something, too, that it goes along with the whole, you know, quality of your life. If you're working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, there's no way you're going to keep it up. There's no way you're going to be doing good, productive work. It's going to I think it's going to hurt your career, not not help your career. Now, somebody said, be purposeful in the organizations you join. Who's, who said that? That was me. All right. Elizabeth, tell us, what were you thinking there? I just think that. It's not like law school, or at least how law school, my experience was, you join like 10 organizations, you don't get involved in any of them, you like maybe go to a meeting every now and then. Some advice I received as a young lawyer, just go find an organization that you want to get really involved in, network within that organization, you know, run for a position, because it's a good networking opportunity for your work. And it also leads to like, getting more involved in your community, doing some good service work and, you know, meeting some other lawyers that you might not see with the trial work that we do. So I think that joining some kind of organization is something that you should do early in your career and don't join 10 of them, do something that you're interested in and it can lead to um, some good relationships with people that you might not meet otherwise. And it's another thing and like just being more well diversified in your yeah, so well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah. I know I have done that and it's certainly been a really meaningful experience to me. I am on the young professionals board of Southside Early Childhood Center. I'm very involved with it. And so it keeps me busy, but it, it creates relationships with other people. I know it's led to some developments in even my work career. And it's just good to have something that you really care about, maybe outside of your job itself. And, you know, it's just I feel like it's helped me become a better, well-rounded person. I try to look for organizations to join that my friends aren't necessarily doing. 
because I find that I have a tendency if I'm doing something where my friends are part of it, I hang out with them or I talk to them and I'm not quite as good at reaching out to people I don't know and forming those relationships. So that's something that's I think is important for me. The other thing that I think is important is if you have as an attorney an area you specialize in, you should try to join organizations with other attorneys who specialize in that area. And, you know, of course, the reason being, maybe it's a fairly specific type of thing you do. They do the same fairly type of specific thing. Uh, and they might have a client they can send you or a case they can send you or something like that. And it's also an opportunity to learn more about that area from people who have been doing it longer, especially when you're younger in your career. So that's, that's my advice. The next topic we're going to talk about is a very, very important issue. And uh, I hear it a lot. I, I hear it a lot, especially from, from younger lawyers, you know, younger female lawyers. And that's uh, dealing with opposing counsel. I see this all the time. You know, the same attorney will treat lawyers differently based upon how long they've been out of school. You get pushed around a little bit or they think they can push you around a little bit because you're not as experienced. And it doesn't happen that often, but some lawyers do that. I'll give you one example. That's it's not one example. It's happened to me several times where I'll be trying a case with one of the younger lawyers here and we'll be in day two or day three. And the other attorney has not made a single objection during trial. And then one of the younger lawyers will get up to take a witness and all of a sudden every other question is objection, you know, objection, leading. It doesn't happen all the time. It happens probably with just a handful of attorneys that I see on the other side of cases. But when it does happen, it's a big deal. And it's not just in trial, obviously. It's in depositions or handling motions or trying to work things out. And this is a topic you all put on the list, right? So everybody wants to hear from you. Has this happened? You know, are some examples of how you dealt with it or how, how do you deal with it? Yeah, so I'll actually share a story that I believe I've previously uh, shared on on Elizabeth and I's podcast. The first deposition that I ever took, the opposing counsel on the other side just kept objecting. And uh, there was a whole line of questioning that I was going down and I got objection every single time. I offered a running objection to this line of questioning. He said, no, I want to make the record clear. And it just felt to me pretty condescending and I didn't feel very respected by this other attorney. And I left the deposition. I was kind of feeling down about myself. I, I talked to the other attorney on the case that I was working for and he was like, you know, don't let him get you down. I just kind of thought, about it. And then a couple weeks later, I had the opportunity to take another deposition in the same case. The same attorney was going to be on the other side. And I really relished the opportunity to prepare. I kept referring to it in my head as my revenge depot. And I knew he was going to make the same objections. And I was just so ready to show him that he could not push me around the next time. And lo and behold, you know, that next deposition, he did the same thing. And I knew it was coming. And so I knew how to shut it down. And I knew how to stand my ground better. And I just came out of that second deposition feeling so much more confident. And I feel like at least I gave him the opportunity to respect me a little bit more after that second time. What I learned from that experience and what my takeaway from that story is don't let your inexperience hold you back and, and be confident in yourself. And it's easier said than done, but don't let anyone push you around. That's a great story. So Megan, let me ask you this. Can you share with us what was the specific thing that you did to address the, you know, like the obnoxious depositions. Do you remember? 
I think it was just being confident and letting him know that he was out of line with these objections and that these questions were proper. And I maybe didn't have the confidence to say that the first time uh, because when he kept objecting, I was like, well, is this a proper way of questioning? Is this uh, even something I should have been asking? And when I talked about it with other attorneys in our firm, they were like, you absolutely should have been asking that. That was not improper. And so having the confidence to say, no, this is my deposition. I'm going to ask these questions. These are proper. Having the confidence to to stand up and stand my ground, uh, I think, was the big difference. So knowing that you were in the right. Right. Wonderful. Elizabeth, what about you? Dealing with opposing counsel is obviously something that we do every day. And especially as uh, a younger lawyer, at least part of the role in my team is I do a lot of the these kinds of conversations, communications with opposing counsel. So I think the hardest part is knowing when you're being pushed around or or is it a time when you should bend because you never know when you're going to kind of need not necessarily a favor, but when you're going to need that opposing counsel to kind of bend for you, like, hey, I'm in a bind. Can we move this? You know, those sorts of things. But I think the number one thing that I've learned is in our line of work, defense attorneys are always trying to find ways to delay our trial dates, get those pushed. So you need to push back when they are trying to set it up to where they're going to have the opportunity to try to get the trial continued. So I think that's something that you need to keep in mind. If you're a younger trial attorney, you can't let those things happen. That's when you need to take a stand, not let things get delayed. I think that's become a little bit more difficult during the pandemic, especially in MedMal. You want to feel for you know the critical care doctors that you're trying to schedule depositions of, but at some point, you know they need to sit for their depositions. So I think that that's kind of been a difficult area because a lot of people have been using a COVID excuse to delay things. And I kind of think we're past the point, like almost two years into this, that we can continue to use that as an excuse. As far as a story like Megan's, I you know have a lot of those. I think in your first couple of years of practice, you kind of do get pushed around or at least other people try to take advantage of you. My story is also made more difficult because it was a remote hearing on a motion to compel. It was our motion, obviously over Zoom. So the judge asked me to take notes of his rulings because it was my motion. So I did that. We got good rulings and he told me to write up the order. And ordinarily, if we were in a courtroom, we would go off to the side, draft the order, come to an agreement, obviously, whatever the judge said. And then if we don't agree, go back up to the judge and be like, look, what was your ruling on this? But when it's over Zoom, you don't have that opportunity. You kind of have to go back, draft the order send it to opposing counsel, see if that's their understanding of what happened. Lo and behold, I send that and I say, you know, I took notes. This is my understanding of the judge's rulings. Like, please let me know. I'll get this entered. And the opposing counsel disagreed with every single of what I said the judge's rulings were. But, you know, I was in the hearing. I know what happened. And he was basically trying to gaslight me and say that's not what happened in the hearing. So I guess we had two very, very different understandings of several issues on this motion to compel. And I was like, look, that's fine. You know, I took notes. The judge asked me to take notes. This is what happened. If, if you don't agree, then, you know, we can take this back up. That's fine. And I pushed back a lot. I wasn't going to bend uh, much, if at all. And then he was like kind of redrafted it a little bit, but it still said what the judge you know, ruled from the bench and we got it entered. But it was a really frustrating experience. And I don't think that that would have happened had we been in a courtroom, you know, for the hearing and then 
had the opportunity to go back to the judge right afterwards. And I think that's just one way that the pandemic has made things harder. And I think just being a younger attorney and getting pushed around a little bit makes things a little bit harder. But like Megan said, it's important to stand your ground. It's nice to be able to come back to the office and talk to an older lawyer about the experience. And I'm sure whoever you talked to gave you examples of the same thing that happened to them, maybe with the same, you know, attorney. Let me ask you guys this. Is it your feeling that it was directed to you primarily because you're a new lawyer or you think they were just, you know, they're just that way and, and deal with everybody, you know, in the same manner? Uh, this individual that I was, that was opposing counsel is only a few years older than me. So I don't think that that was the case. I think that he had just lost the motion and was kind of trying to rewrite history, quite frankly. But I don't know. Those are just my feelings on it. But I do think maybe as female lawyers, we probably people try to push us around a little more than our, our male colleagues, which is, you know, something that's just important to be aware of. I don't know, necessarily know how we can change that, but I think if you're aware of it, you can just kind of let it be known that that's not going to happen to you. And once you kind of get that reputation, then people aren't going to push you around anymore. The advice or the two cents worth I'd throw in is just keep, keep in mind, you can't control the other lawyer. You can't, you can only control your behavior. And if they want to tell their witness not to answer, that's fine. And the second thing is keep in mind, too, there's an end game, and that's the court. You know, if you are right in the position and it's an important enough issue in the case, you don't need to argue with them about it. Okay, make your record. I've had depositions where the witness is coached not to answer, literally not to answer the questions. It's usually experts a lot of times in, in product liability cases. And these are guys who've been deposed 500 times or 400 times and for the same, you know, defendant, you know, usually a car company or whoever. And they just are trained and coached not to provide any meaningful answers. You know, and then you get the objections asked and answered when it wasn't. And what I've done is I stay calm, note on the record that, you know, they're not answering the question. I ask them politely, professionally, respectfully to please listen to the question and answer it. And then I have the question written out. And I'll give you one case, an, an example. It was a product, an automotive product case. I asked the same question 17 times. 17 times, and I know that sounds up not, but I just wanted to build a record. It was in federal court, and I asked the same because I read it, didn't change a word to it, and asked it 17 times. And several points along the way said, Look, this is, you know, this is improper. You're not answering the question. I was building a record for the court. This is, this is silly to waste the judge and the court's time on a matter like this. You're simply not answering my question. Let me ask it. And I asked it three more times and you're continuing not to answer it, and I just built this record. Well, we went to, we got in front of the judge on that issue, and the judge granted a motion, uh, I guess you could call it a sanction, uh, said, we're, we're coming here in the courtroom. Bring the witness back, the expert, uh, bring him into the courtroom, and I will sit through the deposition and rule on, on, you know, on questions throughout the deposition. So it, you know, it worked. I didn't do that. I didn't take the judge up on that. I didn't want to waste the court's time with it. But knowing that that was the judge's position, we got rid of those problems and the rest of the witnesses in the case. You know, the other attorney, knowing that the judge was going to, you know, he already sanctioned them, so it didn't happen again. So we had several depots to go after that. Didn't raise my voice, didn't argue or fight with them. But what I did was build a record, build that transcript, but knowing that that's what the judge was going to have in front of him. Paul, would you share your experience? Sure. I've got a, a story and it was a, uh, it was a meet and confer with opposing counsel on a protective order that we were negotiating. Uh, it was a trademark infringement case and the, 
the firm on the other side is a really good, really large, really well-known defense firm. And this attorney was a, was a really good, really well-known defense attorney. Her and I had gone back and forth and we'd, we'd agreed on a lot of things. And there was one issue that it, it, was, it was my line in the sand. I was like, we, we can't include this language. It was just not going to work for our client, not going to work for the attorneys, not going to work for anyone. And uh, what she told me was, well, you know, I've been with this firm for 10 years and we've been doing, we've had this in every single protective order I've ever negotiated. And I believe well, my response was, well, you've never had a case with me before and we're just not going to agree to that. And it was, it was one of the situations where it, I was kind of doubting myself. I was, I was wondering if I should stick to my guns here. And I just was not comfortable with the language. And I went and I talked to Tony afterwards and he said, we absolutely cannot agree to this. You were right and you did the right thing. But it is, it's where you're in that situation, especially for the first time, it's really, really easy to doubt yourself. What I found that I had to remember is that she's not there to, to help you figure this out or to necessarily even negotiate the best resolution. She's there to get the best result for her and her client regardless of how that impacts you and your client. You know, one of the younger lawyers here actually was Johnny. And years ago, when he was just getting started, he was taking a deposition in a in a uh, case. And the other lawyer was, was continually making speaking objections. And it was a case that was in federal court. And it just escalated. And they're both, you know, hollering at each other. And, and afterwards, or at a break, he, I think it was afterwards, he talked to me about it. What he decided to do, I don't know if it was my suggestion or he came up with it. It was in federal court. I think it was at Eighth, Eighth Circuit jurisdiction. And he he brought with him to the next deposition, you know, an, a, a reported opinion. It was either Eighth Circuit or it was a, a district court opinion. Maybe it was from the same judge that they were in front of. And it was a court that just just some fantastic language about speaking objections. And the court there sanctioned the attorney who was doing the speaking objections. And so the next time that there was a speaking objection in the next deposition, it wasn't, a, well, you can't do that. Yes, I can. You can't do that. Johnny didn't talk to the other lawyer other than to say, you're making a speaking objection. I request that you not do that. And then read the case into the record, read the side of the case. And it was, it was lengthy. I mean, it was like a page and a half and read it in with the sanctions and then just put it down and kept going forward with the deposition. Guess what? It worked. There were no more speaking objections in that deposition. From what y'all are saying, it sounds like, you know, they're, they're, they're leveraging or preying on the fact that you don't have as much experience. And, and, and if they're very in your face and vocal, all of a sudden you start doubting, am I right about this? Trying to, you know, to gaslight you, you know, to say, well, no, that's not the right position. You know, you're right. You're calm. Nothing shakes you. You have confidence. And you know, at the end of the day, no matter what the judge does, you're right. I mean, you're, you're right about that issue. So here's, here's how I want to end this. I'd like to end this by going through with each of you, if you have any suggestions or tips or words of advice for somebody in your position or somebody about to be in your position, somebody who's just starting out there in their first year or second year, uh, or maybe even just getting started at a, at a firm, what are the top you know, couple things that you would uh, give them as advice? Megan, we want to start with you. 
I think my biggest piece of advice is just to remember that you're not alone. No one knows everything when they first begin. People have been in your shoes. Everyone starts somewhere. So just rely on the people around you and have those mentors, have people around you that you trust that you can go to to ask questions. And just remember that everyone started where you were and eventually you'll gain experience. We've touched on a lot of advice I would probably give uh, someone in my shoes, things I wish I'd known at the beginning of my career. Number one, the thing that I preach to myself all the time is uh, this isn't about you. I think that that really helps put into perspective a lot of problems or, you know, crises I think that I face every day. It's not about you. Just like keep your head down. Like don't make it about yourself. I think that makes life a lot easier. Another thing that I don't think that we've talked about yet and my biggest tip and one of my biggest resources at our firm is the staff, my paralegal. I think make that person your best friend, befriend them. When you're in your first year and you have an experienced paralegal, that person knows so, so much more than you do and you need to be nice to them because there's going to be a time where you are going to be in a bind where you've screwed something up and they can help you out of it. They can answer just as many questions as your mentors can about how these things work. So use those people wisely, take care of them, be nice to them because you never know when you might need them. And also just because, you know, you should be a good person and be nice to those around you. But if you don't want to be nice, then I think that that person won't help you out of a bind at some point. That's my advice. Good advice. Paul, what about you? I think I have two things. The first is don't be afraid to take a risk and try a new thing, whether that be working on a type of case or in an area of law that you don't normally do, especially when you're younger. It's kind of a unique opportunity to try new things or to work on a different case or work with a different attorney or things like that, that once you're more established in your career, you won't have the flexibility to do. That's something that I found valuable and that I've I feel has created a lot of opportunities for me and a lot of room for growth and a lot of, I've learned a lot doing it. The other thing is piggybacking off of what Megan and Elizabeth said is it's being a new attorney isn't something people experience in a vacuum. Every good attorney was a new attorney at one point. I have weeks where I feel like I screwed th more things up than I get right. And you just have to kind of accept that and move on and not let it get you down. Everybody, this has been fantastic. I know I've learned a lot. And I hope our listeners have learned, you know, a little bit. I just thank you all very much for, for being on. On behalf of Elizabeth and Paul and Megan and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to having you on the next episode of The Jury Is Out. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning. Mm -hmm.